0: Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, happy to have you with us and happy to have our crew here today. We're a little bit short-handed today as we approach the holidays. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Morning, Philip. Hello, guys. I I was just hoping before we got on the air that you guys would have enough to talk about, but then I'm not too worried. I think (laughs) we'll make it. Yeah, I think we'll make it through. So we've got a a couple good discussions. One, winter feeding plans, how do I know when to modify? So we talked about coming into the winter, how do I plan it out? This time we'll talk a little bit about how do I know when to modify? And then we'll also talk about some things to do in cold weather management, both thinking about the calves, the cows, even transportation. And we've got McKenna Jensen, who's going to come on, who's one of our BCI students. She's going to share a little bit about her research, her program that she's going through to give an update. Before we get into those questions, guys, we're right in the midst of holiday season. Stockings are being filled. I wanted to know if you guys had a stocking full of candy, what kind of candy would be in there? you're picking out what you're going to have in there what what would you select because mine's going to be Reese's you know that.
1: <laughs> yeah I know that one yeah um, and, and that's not bad I, I'm going to go with just basically kind of anything chocolate I like the Hershey's bars just even the plain old Hershey's bars. you want full-size bar you, oh, you yeah. think you've been good enough to get full-size I bars from really Santa. good uh, Santa should be leaving and uh plenty of, plenty the king the
2: king size <laughs> the candy king bars size.
1: that's what I like I like the Twix and the Kit Kats and the and the Snickers or anything but just just Regular old Hershey's is pretty darn good.
2: Yeah, I would agree with you. But I think for you know for Christmas, I mean, we always had a candy cane in our stocking. Oh, sure. And so candy cane, and then you get but some. You then you get some hot. It? Oh yeah, then you get some you hot, chocolate hot chocolate, and you put yeah, and you put it's the candy cane. Then you get kind of a candy cane mint flavor. Your yeah, hot
0: you chocolate. Don't even yeah. Eat it.
2: You just drink it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you
0: drink the candy cane. Uh huh. Huh? So yeah, Philip and I know what we're talking about. I guess you guys do. I don't know. Mine always ended up broken, and I always thought, well, that's nice to have a candy cane. Then I ended up throwing it away in February ish. So now I know, even if it's broken, I could just throw it, just in it in some hot chocolate. Hot chocolate. Yep. All right. I'll, I'll try that. Yeah. You do that. Yeah. So uh, as we talk about winter feeding plans, and we wanted to address a little bit today, and you know, I'll start out, Philip, and I'm I'm going to start out maybe a little different scenario where if we've been grazing cattle on corn stalks, we get to this time of year. They've eaten a lot of the good nutrition that's there. So I have to decide, should I start supplementing them? And then secondarily, supplement with hay, supplement with a different protein source, supplement with something else. Should I supplement them on the corn stalks or not? That's probably five questions, probably enough to start you out with.
2: Mm, yeah, that's, that's good. You'll have to remind me
0: what they are here in a minute.
2: So, yeah, so if we've been on corn stalks, you know, corn stalks have uh, good nutrition or decent nutrition early on before we get a lot of moisture on those and it kind of, they start to deteriorate. And when the cows can eat a lot of the leaves and husks, when they have to start eating a lot more of the stalks, then those are a lot less digestible and a lot less uh nutritional value there so but even on corn stalks we probably were giving them or should have been giving them a protein supplement because those are they're low in protein so they need a little additional protein to help number one digest those corn stalks and number two meet their protein requirements but now as we start to transition or run out of of corn stalks that are that are good enough quality we probably should have started supplementing some hay that's that would be my next choice would be to start providing them some hay I'm not going to use a lot of commercial feeds just to to give them additional energy and, and fill I'm
0: going to give them I'm going to use my hay and, and how do you decide when so like you said if they're starting to eat the stalks can I assess the corn stalks by walking through and visually looking at how much leaf is left versus stalk is that is that your best plan or am I assessing something on the cows yeah
2: well so Two things. Yeah, I would walk through the, the cornfield. You should have an idea in your head of what it looked like when you turned them out there, how much leaf and husk and stuff was out there. Um and then you're walking out there to assess how how much is left or how you know what's there. And and also you could kind of look at if you have gotten a lot of moisture, those stalks and stuff will start to turn black on the ends. And so then you know that the the, the quality is really starting to deteriorate. And so I need to start supplementing. On the cow, well, two things. One, she's going to be hungry. I mean, they're they're if they don't have enough out there to eat that's not stocks, then they're going to be hungry and they're going to be looking, they're going to be reaching through the fence. They're going to be doing things that are going to tell you that they're hungry. And then number two, they could you could visibly see some loss in body condition score if it gets kind of extreme, but that's going to take time. It's going to take you know, one to two months before you can actually visually see them drop a body condition score. Yeah, you don't want to wait till
1: you see a no, body condition not, score drop. You no.
0: Know. But, I, but I think you're right. I mean, so not to be undervalued watching the cows and how they behave. And if they're all out around all spread out they're not grouped up they're not running around as soon as you get in there that's much different than as soon as they see the feed truck or the truck drive by Mm -hmm. they start running up you Mm -hmm. you know there's a little bit difference bob i want to ask you we we talked about on the cornstalk scenario but what about on the hay what if i start to see some of those signs when i'm hay feeding and they're still hungry is it that i'm not feeding enough hay or is it that the hay may not be nutritionally matching their needs how do i sort some of that out and make some decisions while i'm feeding them over the winter
1: well you know hay quality does vary a lot between well year to year and certainly uh source to source and there is certainly some knowledge that you gain about if you're using hay that you've harvested from the same you know fields and pastures years over year you get a pretty good feel for you know kind of you know, based on the forage that you are harvesting and when you harvested it, you get a pretty good estimate, and I think, with what the, the quality is. And if you know you harvested it late, well, then you know the quality is not as good. The other thing is, though, sometimes we'll, we'll buy in hay or forage from someplace else, and then I really don't know as much. I You know, again, you can, you can claim to be able to kind of look and look at the, you know, how much leaf is there versus stem and stuff, but I don't really trust myself to, to be real good about that. So when I purchase hay is when I'm even more interested in doing something like a forage test. You know, get some samples, you know, a diverse, you know, sample more than one bales, sample a bunch of bales. You can pool them together and then send that off for a forage analysis to get yourself in the ballpark. Is this pretty decent hay or pretty bad hay? Because, you know, just driving around the country, there's some forage that's baled up that's probably pretty low energy, pretty low protein. It In fact, it it may serve better as bedding than hay, but it's being fed, and so it will definitely need some supplementation to keep those cows being able to
0: digest it. So, Philip, as Bob recommended, maybe I should do a forage test right when I get my hay or when I purchase it, which would have been this summer. Well, the hay looks different now. Is there any reason for me to redo a forage test if I did one in the summer, or is it going to be about the same? Because right now I'm getting ready to feed the hay, does it, does it change that much, the quality of the hay?
2: It will change, but not that much that fast. Um, so if you got a forage test, you know, three, four months ago when you bought that hay, then that should, that's still good. Now, if it sits all winter long and it's in a place where it's getting a lot of moisture and weathering, then if you're going to try to feed it next year then I would want to retest it because then it is definitely going to have decreased in in quality and digestibility. So so no, I don't know that I need to to retest it. One thing as you start feeding it, you know, watch the cow behavior kind of like we talked about, you know, they're going to if they're going to eat if they're hungry and you're giving them the quantity out there, they're going to eat until they're full even if it's not very digestible. But what you'll notice is that their manure piles are a lot drier. They're piled higher um, because that forage is not as digestible. So they're not even though you see them eating till they're full, they're not eating necessarily enough nutrients. And the passage through the gut is slow, so it gets dried out and as it goes through the gut and you get those really dry, high piles. Of manure, and so that's a good way to know that they're not consuming enough. And so, then you probably need a protein supplement to help them digest that hay and so that they can consume more.
0: Yeah, because it's not just the protein to provide them protein, it helps the microbes help them digest some of that indigestible. So, piled. Mm high and dry is bad you want, <laughs> yes. you want and, and the opposite if it's splatter and it splatters over a big area we're too loose which we mm-hmm. don't usually see that this time of year that's what we'd see in green grass uh-huh. right? yeah to green grass so you you want to watch those manure piles you want to watch cattle behavior both of those are way better than waiting for body score as you guys mentioned if they're if they start losing body fat we're way behind, right? Because there's a big lag there to go through. So I think watching both of those and if you can stay ahead of it with supplementation or hay feeding. The other thing that we talked about briefly, uh, and I want to come back to, Philip, back to the corn stalk scenario. Should I feed them hay on the corn stalks or should I just pull them off and feed them hay somewhere else? Or does it matter? Are, are there pros and cons?
2: There, Yeah, there are some pros and cons. And I, I think one of the pros is that they're out on a cornstalk field. You can They can spread out, so you don't necessarily create so much mud. You can roll bales out, or you can move them to different places easier, but you can have, if you do it in the same place in the cornfield all the time, you are going to create a spot that is not going to produce very much yield the next year because you're going to have a spot that gets compacted, and you just got a lot of st- of bedding or wasted hay and stuff there that's just hard to deal with come planting time next year and so the the con is just that is that if it's wet those cows can cause some compaction out there on the cornfield which can then negatively affect yields so if it's if it's really wet and they're they're sinking in um you know two three four
0: inches then you probably want to pull them off and put them in a dry lot somewhere Okay, so good good trade-offs there, thinking about when and where I can do it, and also, you know, am I renting this cornfield? Is it one I own? Am I going to do the same thing mm-hmm. with it next year? All those are good considerations, especially as we come into cold weather season. We may want to make some different management depending on the type of shelter they have there, and that was one of the other topics we wanted to discuss today. As we're getting into the really cold parts of winter and I want to hit you guys with a, a couple different scenarios. So scenario one: I've got my weaned calves. I've got them in a dry lot. I'm going to background them. My plan is to keep them till March or April, and we may go out to grass at that point. But they're going to stay in a dry lot. These are calves I raised. Do I need to provide them bedding of some sorts? Just a dry lot pen right now? Well, of course, it's
1: going to depend on the situation, such as well, what's the what's the base like meaning that the dirt base is it is it and and your rainfall so basically what i'm trying to avoid is mud yeah. so if there's mud you need bedding if there's a risk of mud you need bedding if you happen to be in a really dry area with really good drainage uh, you still may need some bedding occasionally uh, but probably not nearly as much now, it, mounds or high spots in pens, do they substitute for bedding or I think they in some ways, yes. And so maybe what I'll go back to is, you know, anything you can do to get those the pens that you're going to put them in in really good shape. So again, so the you've you've scraped them, you've got the manure off of them and you're you're really down to dirt or sand or whatever your base is and you've got some mounds and A lot of times I will use bedding, again, maybe frequently in cold, wet areas, and less frequently if it's a little bit drier and the the really uh, cold temperatures are less frequent. But I think we need to think about using bedding in ways to really keep cattle performance up, keep them healthy, and for animal welfare. The negative is then someday you're going to have to deal with that bedding. You're going to have to get that out of there at some
0: point, too, and, and that's really important. So, Philip, let me modify a little bit to you. And instead of my home-raised calves that I've got, let's say I'm a stalker backgrounder, same same environment. I'm putting them into a dry lot pan. I'm going to keep them till March or April, but I'm bringing in high-risk calves that I'm gonna background, do I need to, because Bob gave me kind of an it depends answer. What's your answer on my high risk calves? So if
2: I have to keep them in that dry lot, then yeah, I wanna bed them down, give them a place to lay down and, 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 get, stay, and stay dry. If, if I've got high risk calves, if I can, let them out into a grass trap and spreading them out will, will help a lot. The, the thing we're trying to do with bedding or mounds or whatever else is we're trying to keep the calf dry. So if they're if they get muddy on their their underside and how far up the the side of the animal they get muddy and get wet and that and mud gets on there that really decreases their insulative insulative capacity and so then they have a much harder time maintaining their body temperature in cold weather and so now their maintenance energy requirements are going to go up they're going to require more nutrients they're more likely to have health challenges and those types of things so our, our goal with all of this, whether it's bedding mounds or combination, is we're trying to keep them high and dry.
0: And, and so when you guys talk about bedding, what are some of the typical materials you'd use for bedding? Well, it depends on what's available to you. but wheat straw
1: is a common one. Corn stalks or other you know uh, aftermath from plants. Uh, so mm-hmm. you can you know, basically anything you can bale that's kind of what we were talking before about uh, forage quality. If, if it's really poor forage quality, it might make really good bedding because um, that, that's actually a good use for that kind of plant material. Um, so it's it's I see where we live, I think I see corn stalks and wheat straw most commonly, and those are the ones I'm probably most used to.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Anything that's plant material from a plant that's highly mature, highly lignified is not going to break down as easily. When you're using it for bedding, and so it lasts longer and makes better bedding. Okay.
0: So what about, uh, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, but stay on the cold weather. Any tips if I have to transport cattle when it's really cold? What should I be aware of? What should I think about when I'm hauling cattle somewhere when it's really?
1: Well, the two things that I think about are, again, bedding. Um, I want to bed them um, and also uh, use the appropriate number of uh, amount of ventilations. You know, so depending on the on the trailer uh, you may want to stop up some of the holes you know whether you're using you know boards or something like that you still want some ventilation you don't want to you don't want to stop all ventilation because then it'll actually get hot and humid in there and you'll cause some problems uh, but and, and I don't have the scientific answer for exactly how much of the how much of the openings you should shut down but you should get it down to where you're getting good airflow but there's not as much just direct wind on the cattle
2: yeah i would agree i mean i'm i don't know the exact number either um, but maybe you just may just have to do a little trial and error of you know how many how many how much holes do I need to plug up to to make it effective without making it too stuffy in there.
0: Yeah, I think I think one of the important considerations because we think about hauling cattle, it is a different environment. But cattle that have moved from A barn, if it's show cattle, cattle that have moved from a barn into the cold, is there anything you get concerned about with those transitions? Because sometimes those cattle have a much different hair coat than our cattle that are out grazing pasture. All
1: all of that is true. And, you know, so there are some cattle shows and stuff going on in the wintertime. And if you're transporting cattle, I guess, and again, I'm not really the expert on this, but I'm going to give my opinion anyway, is I love bedding. You know, so you're just going to bed them down so that they can kind of adjust their environment as needed
2: you're going to probably move them from one barn to the next as far as on a show yeah it's it's that trailer move, that trailer haul for several hours to get from one place to the next where they they probably need some bedding in the trailer and really blocking that wind on for those cattle that have a thinner hair coat um,
0: when you're moving them from show to show well, you guys have set the records today. This is the most references to betting in a podcast ever. So I, I think that's probably a world record. I don't have the official tally, but you've said betting multiple times.
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I think in my career, I have seen a greater emphasis on betting just evolve year after year, a little bit more recognition that there's some value there. We all know that the, the negative is you've got to deal with it because now, now I've 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 messed up my lot. And, you know, I talked about getting my lot in good shape and bedding is not helpful there. But there is a real value to the cattle, particularly newly arrived cattle, particularly stressed cattle, particularly really high weather stress events. Bedding is really a good tool to use. It has some negatives, but it has a good tool to use. Excellent.
0: Happy to have McKenna Jensen able to join us today. She's a veterinary student, also working on her graduate program here with the Beef Cattle Institute. Good morning, McKenna.
3: Good morning, Dr. White.
0: So we're happy because you've done a lot of research. In fact, the last two years, you have helped on projects that have done almost 900 necropsies in the field, looking at a lot of different things. Before we dive into your research, tell us a little bit about you.
3: So I did my uh, undergrad at Kansas State University. I'm originally from Superior, Nebraska. And then I came to K-State's vet school, where I got to do two years of necropsy with the BCI.
0: Awesome, and we got you in purple, and you've stayed in purple the whole time. So it's great to have you do some of the work on these projects, and and you have really learned a lot about lung pathology. Tell me some of the things you learned maybe even the first year on the project.
3: So the first year, it started out a little rough um, getting to know the anatomy of the Animals and stuff like that, but then I really got comfortable with seeing the different patterns of pneumonia, such as bronchopneumonia and interstitial patterns, which we see commonly in feed yard animals. Yeah, so
0: so anatomy, and I'll come back and define those in a second, but are you saying anatomy on a necropsy was different than anatomy in the anatomy lab?
3: It was very much different.
0: You've got to see everything in the field. So, bron- bronchopneumonia, which you, you saw in the field, r- really caused primarily by bacteria. We may have some viruses there, but a lot of times that's where we're talking about those lungs will be really consolidated. We may see some, some exudate or some material that comes out, uh, interstitial pneumonia, a little bit different pattern where that lung is kind of reacting. Uh, what did you learn that's different about those two? Because you evaluated how much of the lung was affected by each of those two disease processes. What did you learn?
3: So my first summer, I really looked at how much of each part of these uh, lungs and disease processes were affected. So with bronchopneumonia, it started in one spot and kind of stayed consolidated in one area. And then with interstitial pattern, most of the lungs were completely affected and it spread out completely.
0: Okay, so kind of bronchopneumonia kind of expands from one spot. And, And Bob, as she's described those, would you expect those are the two most common things that we would see?
1: Yeah, they definitely are. And, and it basically, it's coming back to the fact that we know that we lump a lot of things into pneumonia, basically a disease of the lung. But there's different types of disease. So the bronchopneumonia, think, you know, thick, heavy. Um, and so if, if you've got a, a, a lung like that, there's very difficult for air to move through. Whereas the interstitial pattern, uh, think of something like uh, that's really blown up, like almost like styrofoam. And Again, it's going to be difficult for air to move, but instead of being hard and heavy, it's actually blown up and light. But it's still a problem because that's not the way lung is supposed to act, feel, or
0: work. Yeah, because that's what you would say on those interstitial ones, McKenna, is the lung didn't deflate after the animal was deceased because you've got that bronchial constriction or those small airways that are so constricted that the air can't just go out. So a lot of those lungs would be big wet, big edematous-type lungs, swollen, and the bronchopneumonia would be consolidated, firm, a little bit different feeling. One of the challenges, though, is sometimes you get a mixture of those patterns. And one of the cool things that you did in in the previous year was we sent some of those off. We could send them to the lab. They can look under the microscope. They can distinguish some of those, which could be important because that helps us better understand our live animal diagnosis and our live animal treatment. That's why we're doing it, to to figure that out. But this year, we went in and and you had some different ideas relative to how could we look at things in the field. Tell me what your idea was and what you wanted to try out.
3: So we decided to try out uh, floating these lungs, seeing if they would float or sink when we place them in a jar of formalin. So we cut a little piece of um, lung out and we'd put it in formalin for 30 seconds and see if it float or sank and then we recorded that data and then I sent off these samples to the lab to see what they actually were via histopath.
0: Yeah so we'll look at them and get confirmation and your early information shows that there might be something to this.
3: Yes so in my gross diagnoses I've been seeing that uh, a lot of the Interstitial pneumonias were floating, which we kind of expected with the very air-filled lung, while the bronchopneumonias, which are heavy, were mostly sinking.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, and which might be what we would expect, what we thought would happen, and we'll be able to come in and, and confirm that diagnostically through the, through the lab. So you've done some really cool research in the last couple of years. What is your plan after vet school?
3: Uh, after vet school, I would like to go into rural mixed practice. Um, but I am continuing a master's degree with the BCI, so I'm going to finish that out, and then hopefully that will help me with research in the future.
0: Absolutely, and we, we appreciate you joining us today, and especially you're in the midst of finals, vet school, everything else going on. So you've done some really good research the last couple years and like to have that contribution to find out more about what we can do to diagnose those animals to go back and treat them better. So, we'll get follow up from you as your research continues to progress. Thanks for joining us today. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can send them to us at bci at ksu.edu.